Hello and welcome to this week's episode. Like many of you, I am confined to my home as a result of the worldwide lockdown due to COVID-19. Although this has brought many difficulties, mainly financial and work-related, I am currently well and wish all of you the very best right now. At first we were waiting to see what would happen, but now we have a plan for the podcast, and in fact, you may be seeing more episodes rather than less for the time being. All of the recordings are going to be done over video calls from now on, and I'm making every possible effort to ensure the sound quality stays good, but you may notice a few more background noises as my guests are limited to talking from wherever they are based, with whatever equipment they have at hand. Some of you will be in the very fortunate position to be able to continue thinking about writing, filmmaking, and storytelling, so I hope the podcast continues to be a useful resource to you during this time of readjustment. This week is dedicated to the film Looking for Eric, which was written by Paul Laverty and directed by Ken Loach. And for this episode, I am joined by Andrew Graves, a writer, poet, podcaster, and film critic. There'll be more of an introduction to Andrew in a second, and the reason I brought him on the show is because he has written a book about British working-class cinema, which ties in perfectly to this film, which is one of my personal favourites of the last 20 years from the UK. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Without further ado, let's listen. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and this week I'm joined by a very special guest. Andrew Graves is a writer and poet and author of the new book, Welcome to the Cheap Seats, Silver Screen Portrayals of the British Working Class. He's also the host of the Mondo Movie House Weird World of Cinema podcast. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hiya, thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about Ken Loach's film, Looking for Eric, which was written by Paul Laverty. I think this is the third time I've watched this film and the first time I've read the screenplay. It was an absolute joy to read. One of the great things about Looking for Eric is it just seems to be filled with a very strong sympathy for its protagonist and his situation in life. And it's also full of quite beautiful metaphors and the themes around turning your life around when you feel like there's no choices left. Yeah. Could, could you just give us a little introduction to... You've met Ken Loach yourself, I believe. I have, yeah. Part of what I do is that where I'm based in Nottingham in England, there is a fantastic art house cinema called Broadway. So I do a lot of work through the Broadway. So they asked me to run sort of film courses and... Uh, Occasionally they get me to do sort of introductions to special screenings and on a few occasions they've asked me to do live Q&As and the last one I did was with Ken Loach. So yeah, it was was a good thing because I got to spend quite a lot of time with him so it wasn't just a case of him turning up for the q and I got to spend like an afternoon with him. And as as you can imagine, he's um, on some levels he's, he's incredibly laid back um, he has no airs or graces about him at all. I mean, the Broadway staff wanted to put him in a special green room with food and things like that, but he wouldn't have it. He just wanted to sit in the cafe with everybody else. But in, in some ways, he's kind of, uh, you know, as most artists and professionals are, he's not laid back in terms of he, wa- he wants things to be right. Because the Broadway was showing, uh, sorry, we missed you when I did the Q&A. And... 
he wanted to see the first 20 minutes of the film and the last 20 minutes of the film actually in the cinema. And he spent a considerable time with the projectionist making sure that the sound was on the right level. And he's really, really fastidious in that sense. And the other thing that's, that's, that's a little bit... Um, not, not, not strange, but it's just uh, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting it. Is is how it's just how much because I, you know, as someone who's really into films, I just wanted to ask about his techniques and the way he approaches films and to explore that with him really. But he really, the mindset where he's at at the moment is completely politically focused, and and the screening. Did because of the nature of that film, sorry we missed you. Did turn into a kind of almost like a political rally, and we, we even had the deputy leader at that time of the Labour Party turn up on the same night and kind of gate crashed the sort of party really. But um, <laughs> so it's a weird event. But you know, I, I'm not complaining. I got to spend an afternoon with Ken Loach. He's one of my filmmaking heroes. You know. So looking for Eric as a film and a screenplay is not as political, I'd say, as most of Ken Loach's other other works. Mm. It's more of a personal tale. Yeah, well, I think from uh, from what I understand, I mean, for, obviously Paul Laverty wrote the script, and I think it was born out of well, they they'd worked on they'd recently before they did this, they did Wind That Shakes the Barley, which was a very very brilliant film, but a very heavy subject matter and I know going into the next project even before they come up with an idea I know Paul Laverty had kind of said whatever we do next we need to do something that, that has a little bit more mischief and, and maybe a little, little bit more humour because we don't want to go down this heavy route again we need to give ourselves a break or we'll go insane but I don't think they necessarily had a set idea until I think Ken Loach met up with uh, Eric Cantona. Eric Cantona had an idea for a short film called Why Not, which was about a football fan following Eric Cantona's career and things like that, or something like that. And I think Paul Laverty had the, the flu. He had heavy flu at the time. Uh, and so this meeting with Eric Cantona became a little bit surreal. And I think he began to come up with this rough idea in his head. He started to think about... Eric Cantona as this footballing hero and those classic images where you see him on the, on the pitch and it's not he Laverty talks about this idea it's not when he scores the goal it's the moment afterwards when he's got his chest sticking out to the 50,000 fans mm -hmm. or whatever and he kind of Laverty being who he is he sort of imagined well this is King Eric what if there's another Eric you know in in the crowd who is almost a, the polar opposite of Big Eric, this little Eric character. And so this idea came out of that. And I think once they'd started playing around this idea, you know, it, it was very theoretical because unless they got Cantona involved, it was never going to happen. So I think Paul Laverty went to meet Cantona in Paris. And at that point, Cantona kind of fell in love with the idea and it sort of grew from there. So Eric Cantona... In this version of him, he is the same Cantona who, after his incident at Crystal Palace where he kicked a fan, went out into um, his press conference and gave this very cryptic response, which does appear right at the very end of the film about how when the trawler goes out to sea, the seagulls follow it because they expect <laughs> sardines. 
and then he left his press conference and I think they really captured that kind of idea of him as someone who is especially an Englishman's idea of a Frenchman the very philosophical and poetic and all of this stuff but at the same time he's also this footballer who gets things done and believes in teamwork and honesty and surprise and all of these things that made Eric Cantona I think such a exceptional player at his time at Manchester United. It's funny that at the moment with the coronavirus lockdown and the Premier League being stopped, there's a lot of Premier League highlight matches being posted online for people to kind of go back and watch earlier moments because there's no new sport to be watched. And so I was watching a couple of these old games because when I was a kid, Eric Cantona would have played for Manchester United during the time I was about, I think, four or five years old, up until the time I was about eight or nine. So I distinctly have a memory of Eric Cantona playing. I had a Manchester United shirt as a kid before I even knew anything, really, because he was just such a huge sensation around England. And um, I was re-watching these matches to kind of get a sense for what it was like to watch him at his peak and a lot of this stuff comes up that they kind of allude to in the screenplay as well which is the fact that the crowd is full of people who are local working class people who nowadays can't afford to go to the matches anymore eric Cantona was bought i believe for 1.2 million pounds from leeds which just seems <laughs> completely impossible nowadays that one of the best players in the premier league would go for 1.2 million pounds but there's just such a an atmosphere in the stadium. I watched a game. It was the Liverpool-Manchester game from 1994, which was just absolutely fantastic. And Cantona's presence on the pitch, him just strutting around with his collar up, and the way that players used to play, you know, there, there's all these tackles that would definitely get people sent off nowadays and barely even registered a yellow card. <sighs> in these matches and stuff like that. And and it just is so interesting to look back on it and as this kind of lost world as well that kind of only exists in memory. And this is what it's like for Eric Bishop, the character, that he's he's kind of lost that world that he was a part of as a fan. Yeah. I, I mean, Cantona to me, I mean, I'm obviously I'm, I'm a bit older than you, so I remember when, you know, when Cantona was at the height of his powers, I was about 23, 24 and I remember living, I, I'm not a huge football fan at all, but I was living, at the time I was living in a shared house and the guy, the main guy in the house was massive, massive Cantona, Man U fan. Absolutely. He was similar to Eric in that sense. He was, it was his life, you know. He had the room full of posters and stuff like that. And I guess for me, as, as a kind of more non-football type fan, really, Cantona is still quite fascinating it's because he kind of transcends the game or just the match, that 90 minutes. To, he is that personality. In, in a similar sense to, if we go back even further, someone like Brian Clough as a manager, you know, he was just, you, you can't not be fascinated by Brian Clough. And it's the same with Cantona. And also the fact that in the film he is kind of playing obviously a slightly exaggerated version of himself, but there is still that sense that he has that sense of humour and he's not taking himself too seriously, even within the frames of that narrative, you know. There's that beautiful moment where uh, 
she's philosophizing to Eric and, and Eric's kind of getting frustrated and saying, you know, I've only just got over the seagulls. <laughs> it's just a brilliant moment. <laughs> and, and also, you know, the little bit where they're on the balcony as well, when he's helping Eric to deliver his mail and, and he says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he kind of says to him, it's good to know that you're just a man. And Cantona says, I am not a man. I am Cantona. <laughs> but, and then he starts laughing and yeah. me straight away. It's, it's, uh, it's some really lovely little moments in the film. Yeah, so I, what I feel Paul Laverty did with the screenplay and setting up these two polar opposite characters is that obviously this Cantona is not real. He's, mm, yeah. he's coming from within Eric Bishop's mind. And there's an early scene where... Maybe we should just start actually with the very beginning where this character lands and then explore how he starts to turn his life around because film and narrative is often simply about character progression. We don't want to see characters that stay passive throughout the entire film. We want to see them active and moving. And that's always a difficult thing when you've, you want to write a character who is stuck in life there's no tension there. So you have to kind of really be economical with the details and get straight into it. So we see Eric at the moment of his breakdown, and then we start to see how he goes about turning his life around, which will include the appearance of Eric Cantona. Actually, the way that it's filmed is a little bit different in the intro as to the screenplay. In the screenplay, there's a lot of dialogue and a lot of background details and the police are coming over to his car and they're, they're radioing and talking about this crazy guy on the roundabout. And what we actually get in the film is wordless. It, there is no dialogue. We just watch until the moment of a crash. This is something that I think for screenwriters is an important distinction is that you often do think you need to say a lot to the audience, but when it's visual and when there's an actor there who can portray so much with just a look yes or just some expressions through their acting you find you don't actually need all of that dialogue and explanation it will all be as long as it's explained shortly afterwards with the scenes that follow yeah i mean when i uh read the screenplay and then re-watched the film again i mean i have to say when i re-read when i read the screenplay sorry i, I was thinking in my head I can't remember this bit being in the film. And then I went back to the film and realised, obviously, they yep. cut that out. Yeah, because there's a lot in in that opening sequence. There is, initially, as it was written, we, we were supposed to get uh, voiceovers from his father and from Lily as well, he, his ex. And, and that, obviously, doesn't appear. In, it's dealt with, really, in a couple of beats, isn't it? We see him going round the roundabout and then crashing, and then that's kind of it, really, isn't it? For that, where it, it does seem much more drawn out in the screenplay. When he recovers in the hospital, we get basically two character details. He's half talking to the nurse. He wants his clothes back so he can go to work, but he's kind of also just a bit shaken up by what's happened, so he's just kind of ex saying things out loud. And the two details that stand out are, I can't be late to work. And Lily, I'm so sorry. And at this point, we don't know who Lily is. Yes. It's his, his first wife, who is his first real and only real love, I suppose, is the way to describe her. But these two character details kind of tell us everything. Just these two things are what we need to know that 
someone who wakes up in that state and is clearly in the middle of a, a crisis and needs to take a break. Uh, another thing that <laughs> is becoming more and more relevant to, in the times we're, we're in right now, it's just a sense that he can't stop. He can't be late. He's got to go to work. That drive to keep going, to keep acting as if everything is normal and not take a break when he's in a real crisis. And then that sense that there's these underlying ghosts to use you know, a simple way to, to express that. There's something that's haunting him that he has not yet got over. And it's what comes up at his most vulnerable, at his most shaken up, at his drunkest. That's what is going to go to his mind. It's this fact that he never really resolved everything with Lily. Yeah, I, I think in terms of, you know, Ken Loach um, stroke Paul Laverty things, it feels... So if we compare this to say I Daniel Blake and and sorry we missed you it's it's more I I prefer it to those films but I think it, it's it's it, in some ways it, it works really well but it's also it's quite a complicated story a few filmmakers may have taken certain elements from looking for Eric and concentrated on that I mean you've got the kind of the, the postman who has a, a breakdown and he's rehabilitated by an imaginary Eric Cantona. That's enough for some filmmakers to go to go on. But the fact that you've got also this idea of Lily and the backstory and the dance competitions and all that, coupled with the stepson sort of uh, story, it all comes together beautifully. It doesn't feel complicated when you see it. But I think seeing those things on paper, it can it can feel a little complicated, but it, it's not. I, I think it, it works really, really nicely. All those elements work. And I guess the thing that holds it above some other Ken Loach films, I think, for me, what was missing with Sorry We Missed You, I kept hearing people saying, this is an important film, this is an important film. And, and it, obviously it was released not, deliberately but obviously it was released it came out around the same time that we were having a general election in the uk so it became this impossible sort of political thing to be fair i don't think the story and i don't think the film is 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 as good as looking for eric and i think in some ways those two because they both they're both really talking about sort of delivery men really getting into a state but i, I think the issues were there in Sorry We Missed You, but the, the, to me, the story wasn't there. And I think Looking for Eric is a much more rounded story. It's a much more rounded Ken Loach film. It's it's an absolutely beautiful Ken Loach film. And, and, and like Kez, Kez can certainly be read as a political film, absolutely. But it's the poetry of Kez which transcends the politics. You know, even if you're the most right-wing of right-wing people, I, I would argue you can still see a beauty in Kez. And I think regardless of your politics or even your stance on football, there is still so much to enjoy from looking for Eric. So th there's a sense that it fits into a mould of filmmaking which I believe is more American. And the way I would describe that is because it puts the individual as the main source of change and drama in the screenplay, as opposed to looking for external factors. 
Eric's life is not going to change if there's a Labour government or a Conservative government. Yeah. It's up to him to figure out what parts of his life he can actually change and get his own house in order, which is basically a, a theme that comes up throughout the screenplay as him going through this house that has just descended into absolute chaos and he's got no control over it anymore. And the set design and the costume in Looking for Eric are, are so good because they go unnoticed. If you've lived in England, you know these houses, you know the way these people dress, you know the way that the kitchen's going to look with all the dirty dishes piled up and and the living room is like there is a TV there, but you have to move stuff to go and sit down on the on the sofa to go and watch the TV. And there's people coming in and out and, and all of this kind of chaos going on. And what Eric Cantona does as this aspect of his mind, which is able to help him, is he says, there's always more choices. There's more choices than you think you've got. And you just have to kind of scan your mind <laughs> to figure out what you can do. As long as you stay active, you can find some sort of solution to the problems you're facing. And I think in that way, it takes away that sense of the politics, the fact that this it's not a character who is being hard done by by the government, which are also valid stories to tell. And I think that's what Ken Loach has done numerous times in other films and in the wind that shakes a barley, it's about a foreign government coming in mm. and making life tougher for the inhabitants of a place. But in looking for Eric, it just says this kind of stuff doesn't matter in a way. It's about personal change. Yeah, I think that, I guess, if politics comes in, it's much more politics with a, with a, a small P. I mean, if you look at, I mean, one of my favorite scenes. And it works as a comic moment, but it's the idea of the, the character called Spleen who, you know, they're watching the Man U game at the pub and he's got, you know, he's talking about, because uh, he's, he's got the other football team, this this lower... Yeah, FC uh, United. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's just that idea of the this thing that all these men in this, this these working class men in this room in this pub are worshipping is just this huge financial machine that's which they can't even afford to go and see anymore and 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 him making that point and it but it, it is played as comedy so it doesn't feel as though anybody's preaching to you but it is there it's always there but i think yeah this is not about as you say it's not about eric being hard done to by a particular government this is a personal situation which would have happened regardless. I mean, there, there have been a few, don't get me wrong, but I think this is this is one of those Ken Loach films which I think it even said it on the posters that this is the feel good, you know, one of those feel good films of the year. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, and I usually if I see that on a poster, I run about a mile. <laughs> I don't go and see it, but <laughs> I, I, I do, I do think there is something in that. I think this is a, this is a proper. Ken Loach feel good film and and I there are moments in looking for Eric particularly when he's kind of being hounded by the gang the violent gang the guy with the gun and stuff and the dogs and you see him returning home and putting the gun back under the floorboards now in my head when I watch that even though I've seen the film a lot of times I'm thinking in lots of other Ken Loach films this is where he would end it 
he would leave you with this bad feeling in mm. your mouth. But thankfully, we, we don't get that with uh, looking for Eric, and we get quite a positive, upbeat ending. I'd certainly agree with that. I I think that there is politics and sociological issues to unravel in looking for Eric, but they do not make themselves the essential force which the character himself has to confront. So this kind of background detail is very fun to look at, and it's it's very valid as well. It's a sense of having established a world in which he can live, which is the England of the 80s and 90s, essentially, is where Eric was just about comfortable, but things are changing, and it's far out of his control. One of these things is the football aspect, and this FC United, to give a bit of background detail to those who who are listening and, and don't know much about it, it's essentially a fan-owned club that was created in Manchester as a response to an American family, the Glazers, buying Manchester United, and this feeling that the club had been sold out to billionaires. No longer could working-class people afford to go to the matches anymore, so they set up this very small team that, although it was never going to reach the Premier League and have world-class players or anything like that, it was just finally they could afford to go to the games again. I think they mention in the screenplay, it's, oh, come on, come on, Eric, it's just two quid. You can bring your whole family. And it was just created, and they always said, uh, I think FC United have made it that it will always be fan-owned, which even Real Madrid and Barcelona are fan-owned, so it doesn't, it doesn't put a limitation on potential success, but they set it up with that in mind so it could never become Manchester City being bought by the Emiratis, I believe, right? Manchester City. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so the other sociological background to it is this gang warfare, which you can imagine, it doesn't need to be explained specifically, but you can imagine that the kind of fights and brawls that Eric would be used to as a fact of daily life in Manchester in the 70s, 80s, and 90s have suddenly become much more dangerous. That it's no longer people who know each other getting into essentially fist fights at a pub, but that by this point, this uh, criminal, Zach, you know, he's in a nightclub and someone looks at him funny or insults his clothes and he's willing to shoot that person to send a message. That this kind of social change has happened and it's not the world that Eric recognises anymore. Yeah, and, and I think that kind of social commentary, it's done really, really subtly, I think. You know, it, it, you're absolutely right with what you said there. It's that there's a line where he's talking to, to Jess, his other stepson, and, and he says, when he's talking about Ryan, and he says, you know, what what on earth's going on? How did we get here? What is, and it is that, it's not, a kind of you know again it's not the underlying political thing but it is the social commentary is there and it's it's the social commentary viewed through the eyes of a, a a confused father stroke grandfather and ryan who is the the son who's caught up in the crime gang says to eric repeatedly you don't understand you don't get it it's too hard for him to he's grown up in it and he understands how it works but he can't figure out how to express that to Eric as someone who 
just thinks, oh, you can just go to the police, tell the police about it or something. He's like, no, you don't get it. And that's kind of, the word you used is subtle, and I think that's absolutely right. It doesn't have to explain it all to us, but it's just kind of there. We we know what it means, I think, when we see it. I think the other thing about um, this, I mean, that whole situation as I said, this in a lot of Ken Loach films, that would be kind of where that situation ends. I mean, if you look, you know, go back to something like Raiding Stones, say, I mean, that there is a kind of, in some ways, there's a more positive, hopeful ending, but in other ways, it's still a real mess, you know. And uh, the fact that neither Paul Laverty or Ken Loach takes us there, and there is this kind of more triumphant, more hopeful ending. Um, I, I think the other thing about um, th- this this film, though, is the way that... Because obviously I've written quite a lot about working-class cinema and I come from a working-class background and I grew up on sort of similar sort of council estates that we see in uh, a lot of Ken Loach films. It's the relationship not just with his sons but also with his wider circle of friends from the postal service. That's... Having watched a lot of British films, a lot of British films that get it absolutely wrong, I think. I think this this film gets those working class characters right because they're certainly not romanticised as they are in a lot of British films. But at the same time, they are not stock characters or cliches either. They They feel rounded and they feel like they are largely middle aged working class blokes who have certain limitations but they are they are also what's really endearing about is that they they are in order to try and help eric they place themselves into situations that are either a dangerous or slightly strange you know so we we go from um the idea that they're doing the sort of self-help books and they're sitting in eric's lounge trying to do the sort of meditation exercises which is is brilliant (laughs) and some of them can't get into it and then others get too into it but then they are so they're willing to do that but also you know by the end of the film they're all they're literally risking their lives for him and i think that is a that's a really it's not overplayed but it's there and it's a really endearing thing i think especially as i live in America now, I've seen this difference uh, in myself as well. The way that I was brought up to believe a certain thing about Americans is that the only part of the bookshop they go to is the self-help section, and they don't treat this with the same kind of sarcasm that British people do. And that scene in his house early on, where Meatballs is trying to get them to participate and everyone just can't stop making jokes about it it's it just feels so true to exactly that kind of perception that this is all kind of ridiculous but at the end of the day it's also what works for eric and running through this screenplay there's a parallel to i guess psychoanalysis or psychotherapy a progression up to to self-realization, I suppose, is kind of going through this. And the early important line in that scene is, think of someone to emulate that you look up to. And there's these wonderful character details in the film 
They're not specifically written into the screenplay, but it makes so much sense when you see it on the screen. In that first scene, Spleen has his collar up. He's already emulating Eric Cantona. And Eric, in a couple of the scenes that follow, starts to turn his collar up. And you can kind of see this transformation. And by the end, the, the last line of dialogue he, he says to his, his ex-wife Lily is, Lunatic? Moi? And he's, he's using that word of French. And it's these little details that show him starting to realize he's not going to be Eric Cantona, but he can find this kind of bravery and strength to confront difficulties in his life by looking up to that idol who he's been projecting all of those qualities onto for a lot of his life. And that kind of idea about projection, I think, is very interesting. I imagine people like Paul Laverty and Ken Loach will be very aware of this power in filmmaking because it's something that, you know, all of celebrity culture is kind of based on and a lot of film itself is based on this idea. It's why do you cast George Clooney or Brad Pitt or someone like that in a film? It's because it contains this kind of power of projection for the audience that for a moment they can connect with these qualities in the character by exaggerating it. James Bond, I, we just did an episode on Casino Royale, is another great example of that, I think, that the reason why audiences flock to the cinema to see James Bond is for those two hours where you get to pretend you're a spy, an international spy who gets all the women and, and you know, jumps out of moving vehicles and off the top of a train and stuff like that. You know, it, it, it engages with that idea of projection and then it goes a little bit further and it talks about how to incorporate those qualities you feel you lack into your own life. So that's constantly running through the screenplay. It kind of follows along with this framework. And it all begins with Eric kind of looking at this poster of Cantona in his room. And he asks the poster, when was the last time you were happy? The only way he can kind of ask himself the question is by projecting it outward and then Eric Cantona appears to give him that guidance and those answers kind of like a mentor figure throughout the film. Yeah, and I think the title, obviously, Looking for Eric, is, you know, works on a number of levels. So, yeah, it is his friends are kind of looking for Eric. Uh, you know, Lily's looking for Eric, and Eric is looking to Eric Cantona and not... I mean, we don't know, very few people are going to know what Eric Cantona is actually like in reality, but what Eric is searching for is that kind of essence of Eric Cantona that he can, as you say, project onto his own situation and to get him through that. It's it's it's, it's very, very clever. And I think, I mean, it, in terms of the screenplay and in terms of what, what we see and then how that changes slightly, for the filmed version i think there are there are a number of elements like you say the opening sequence of the roundabout changes slightly but i think also the scene we were just talking about where they're trying to do the sort of meditation i mean that that's a really good example i think of a screenplay being written um which may have run its course that way had someone else been directing it but because this is a ken loach film and he is his technique is really to, in, in some instances, to just let 
actors run away with it. I mean, you can tell because the way that that scene is written down is markedly different to what we see on screen. Mm -hmm. Because in that room, you've got very strong northern characters. You know, you've got Justin Morehouse, who is a stand, who's been a stand-up comedian for years, and he's appeared on sort of sitcoms and things like that. Uh, who plays Spleen. And then you've got, you know, the Meatballs character as well. I mean, these are all well-established kind of... And you've got Smug Roberts there as well, who's playing one of the postmen. He's, again, he's another well-established northern comic. So these are strong personalities. So it makes sense that Ken Loach is just going to say to them, okay, this is the script, but, you know, just go with it. Because you can see, I mean, this, I mean the bit, there's so much in that scene that is not in the screenplay. Because they've just ad-libbed and they've just gone with it. Yeah, there's this authenticity that um, also uh, was used to great effect in This Is England in casting the protagonist as Thomas Turkus, a kid with very little acting experience but who had grown up in, in that world and could just kind of authentically portray it. And then the director is able to step away and say, what would you do in this situation? And the way that um, the dialogue is written in Looking for Eric is very interesting as a screenplay because he uses a lot of ellipses mm. and he'll put these key phrases in and then ellipses and then another key phrase. And it's almost an invitation to the actor to say, "Yeah, how would you say this? Get across all of this. This is the information you need to get across at this moment. But say it the way that you would say it. Say it as an authentic northerner, essentially. I can't write this dialogue for you precisely as you would say it. I mean, the thing is, um, Paul Laverty had been working with Ken Loach since 1996 when he did Carla's song. So he would be well versed in how Ken Loach works as a filmmaker in that he, you know, sets up these scenes and really let lets the actors go and, and will keep filming until... You know, he'll let the scene play out however it's going to go, regardless of what's on, on the page. So what strikes you about Paul Laverty's screenplay is it is how polite it is in some way. You know, there, it is very mm-hmm. much, you know, like you said, there are these moments in the screenplay where it is almost perhaps Meatballs does this or, you know, perhaps Spleen says this. Like you say, it is a suggestion, whereas completely polar opposite. If you read... A Tarantino script. There's nothing polite about that. It's very much this is definitely what's happening, kids. You know, this is it. This is it, cats. You know, this is where we're going with this. Mm-hmm. In comparison, it's a very polite, which is I don't mean it's not confident in its storytelling and its narrative, but in terms of allowing, because he knows that Ken Loach will do that anyway once he's on set. There's lots of room in this script to let the actors do their thing. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very clear about itself being a framework and knowing that the most important thing to do is to ensure that the key story details don't get lost. That as long as they follow along with the key structure of the screenplay, the film as a whole should work in the end. But you can literally take this screenplay and, and watch the film alongside it and see how the actors reinterpreted lines. Just one that's coming to my head that just stood out for me, for example, was when they're having dinner, Eric mentions with Jess making the pudding that it would have been cheaper to 
buy it from a five-star restaurant. <laughs> and on screen, he says, it would have been cheaper to get Gordon Ramsay in. And those kind of just reinventions of the same line, it conveys the same information, but it doesn't have that aloofness. It, it suddenly feels more grounded yeah. into the reality of the place where they live. And there's, there's also little things that are kind of cut as well. We, we, we don't know whether they were filmed or not, but um, and when they were just left on the cutting room floor, but certainly in the scene where Eric's had enough and, you know, he gets his mates round to get rid of all the junk and the tellies and then he cooks himself some chips and steak and, you know, Jess, Jess mm -hmm. and Ryan turn up expecting to get the same and they realise he's just cooked for himself. So Ryan storms out and and in the end, in the film, the scene ends with Jess just looking really disappointed. But I think in the screenplay... Eric goes to the fridge, gets himself a drink, and he turns around and Jess has nicked his dinner and he thinks he runs off yeah. and he eats it in the toilet. And then there is this moment where, rather than being angry, Eric starts to, to laugh and realise, actually, I can still have a laugh with my stepson. So that's not in the film, but because I don't think it would necessarily have worked at that point. You have to have this kind of, And I think it's that's possibly to do with the actor that's playing Jess, his, his look of disillusion or disappointment at that point is, is quite funny in itself yeah and the, there's a feeling that you kind of maybe around that point you need to shift the narrative a little bit and have a bit more sympathy for the the two children because they've been walking all over him for so long that ryan especially is very dislikable for the first two-thirds of the film <laughs> as an audience i feel that we're you know we we dislike him we think you know it's appalling the way he's acting towards his stepfather the stuff that he's getting up to you, you get the feeling that in another household he would have been out on the street by this point i did enjoy that scene but i think maybe they were afraid that it just kind of made jess a little bit dislikable right at the key moment where we're actually meant to be thinking about unity and everyone supporting each other yeah, yeah. I think I agree. I think I think the the Ryan character, he's left to be dislikable for just or unlikable just for just long enough, I think, you know. I think, you know, they take it about as far as it can go. If they'd pushed it any further, it would have tainted the narrative a little bit. I think, you know, the fact that we get to the point where he's literally belting his stepdad across the face with a gun. That's we, we, you can't really take it any further than that. Something has to break at that point, doesn't it? And there's a sense of responsibility that's running through the screenplay. Again, when I said before that it's not about looking for external factors to blame, the screenplay really takes time to figure out what is Eric's responsibility in this household and with his family. And is he fulfilling all of those responsibilities? And it kind of offers this suggestion that when he is fully taking care of himself, then other things will follow. The kids will start to be disciplined and respect him. And he'll be able to show his ex-wife that he is no longer a coward and that he's not afraid to confront difficulties and danger and all of these things. And it's just that... That is kind of the central message, I think, throughout the screenplay is once he gets his life in order, he's able to be a help to other people. But at the beginning, he needs help from everyone else. 
And that takes some courage as well, is to reach out to the other people around him, to meatballs and and the rest of the post office workers. And that's something that the character of Eric Cantona encourages him. It's to look to your teammates, to ask them for help, ask them for support. That's what they're there for. What it does is it creates this very nice message throughout the film, which is essentially, you might be ashamed of what's going on, but have you actually tried sharing it with anyone else? Have you actually tried asking for help? And you might find out that it's not as bad as you think, that combined we're stronger than alone, that, you know, this kind of idea that no man's an island kind of thing. It it works really well, I think, and that's kind of the heart of the the screenplay for me, I think, is this this personal journey, which is not just about Eric fixing his life. It's about how much better other people's lives will be if he fixes his life as well. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's that, the idea that he is flawed in terms of he's got various issues and problems to deal with. But at the same time, what you really get is how good a person this is you know how much he is he is willing to sacrifice his own happiness and and with ryan and jess you know it's built up to you know he will still despite the fact that we've got to this point where ryan is bringing weapons into the house and he beats his dad he pistol whips his dad and treats him like rubbish through most of the film and yet Eric still puts himself into the position where he's going to front up to Zach and put himself in danger to protect two children, which aren't even his children. That's a really endearing, but not unbelievable thing. And this this is what shows the strength of that character, despite the fact that we're being shown how weak he is in other areas. And that is there, ultimately, he is willing to step up. Looking at this as a story of individual change does not mean that it has to be individualistic. It is a story about solidarity at some level, and it's it's kind of going into those ideas of, yes, a lot of Ken Loach's films will be about um, left-wing politics, but this idea of solidarity is not only political, it's a community kind of feeling that... Uh, to be able to depend on your neighbors, to be able to depend on the guys you work with, to be able to depend on your family, that kind of transcends the politics as well. It's it's kind of practice what you preach in a way. Someone who's a good left-winger would have those qualities at home, I, I suppose is kind of what they're saying as well. It's, it's, it's looking at it that way. And um, one of the things I really love in one of the conversations between Eric and Cantona is when Eric's asking him about his greatest moment. Mm. He's asking him, it's got to be a goal, Eric. And he, he's listing these different moments of glory, personal glory for Cantona, where he's scored a last-minute winner or done something absolutely incredible on the pitch. And Cantona looks at him and says, no, it was a pass. Mm. And I think that is so central to this story as well. It's the fact that your moment of glory doesn't have to be the goal it can be that moment you supported someone at the most important moment as well yeah because it's not he doesn't necessarily do the obvious thing as well where he ends up in a 
a nice relationship with Lily at the end. There are bridges being built, and and the idea that you know Lily says, you know, I'll I'll very often just find myself a B and B, and 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 Eric says, oh, don't you get lonely? She says, well, no, I sometimes take a lover, and it is that you know. So it's kind of this idea that if this is not a will they or won't they romance, it's just simply about building bridges and and figuring out how far that family unit stretches because Eric's family would also include his sort of postal workers and and I think the other thing that gets lost when we look at something like looking for Eric because there's there's so much else going on and I know this was um other than the Eric Cantona angle I know when Paul Laverty was formulating these ideas what one of the kickstarters was the fact that he'd recently become a grandparent so a lot of he wanted the fo- a lot of the focus to be on what it is to be a grandparent and that that changing relationship in in a family when once you become a grandparent and obviously a screenplay around that is not necessarily going to be funders aren't necessarily going to salivate over that so so obviously you have to put these other things in there but really if you know if you take the cantonal thing out this, this film's all about the changing nature of families and grandparents and, and what it is to be a grandparent and those different things about family, including grandparents and sons and stepsons and how how complicated that is. Uh, yeah, so tying into that, I think another of the strengths in the story is how the characters, the things they believe are based on these memories that are flawed because they only have one side of the story as well. And it I think some of the most interesting parts are right in the middle. As as writers, we often talk about how difficult the second act is because the first act has all this momentum. It's it's full of this is the setting, these are all the characters, this is this is where this story is going, and that's that's very exciting right at the beginning. And act three is really easy because it's this is all of the stuff coming together. This is the, the big conclusion. But the middle, that act two, is often the bit that's hardest because it's figuring out, okay, where, how do I keep this momentum going from act one but not get to conclusion stage where we're wrapping everything up too early? And something that's done very cleverly in looking for Eric is to have that be the moment that he really reconnects with Lily and they start talking about the way each of them remember how their relationship fell apart and neither of them knew what was going on with the other person. So Lily had no idea about Eric's panic attacks because he'd been keeping it from her, and he was... The screenplay goes into a bit more detail about this, about him having this this uncle who was in and out of asylums and and mentally ill. There's something, again, that the filmmakers are bringing light to subtly is the extent to which things like depression and panic attacks, anxiety attacks, things that are quite well known, I suppose, nowadays and are talked about a bit more openly, were really kept in in the dark, kept in the shadows, I think, certainly in the previous generation and definitely in generations before that. You know, our grandparents' generation and great-grandparents' generation and going back, there was just such a a different approach to being honest about what was going on in someone's life and we see facets of that in in all kinds of things like 
people who were clearly unhappy that never got divorced because they were afraid of the shame it would kind of bring onto their family, whereas nowadays it's something that's quite common. It's something like 50% of the couples in Britain are getting divorced. But it's alluding to that fact. It might seem really obvious to a, a younger audience that Eric would have shared that with, with Lily, but I think it feels very authentic that he didn't share that, that he just ran away and hid it from her because he was concerned about what people might think of him, that they th- might think he's going crazy, that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's part of what this this film is is about, is exploring how how easier it is in some sense, even at that point. I mean, this is not a film that was made in the 70s or 80s, but still at that point, how easy it was if you came from a more affluent or middle-class family to be able to admit those things. I'm not saying it was always easy in that situation, but it was easier. Whereas if you came mm-hmm. if you came from a working class background, particularly if you're of a certain age, a similar sort of age that Eric I mean Eric in that film was maybe slightly younger than, than my dad was when, you know, when he died, you know, and um but my dad certainly came from that generation where my dad went through two divorces. But the first divorce from my mother when I was eleven, it was a, it was a strange one because you know, like you said, now divorce is so prevalent. You know, people get divorced, but back then, on a little council estate, working class council estate, I remember my mum leaving home, and me coming home from school to find that my mum had left, and my dad telling me, and going back to school the next day and not saying a word to anybody. Didn't tell any teachers because it was there was this shame attached to it. And it was it was very similar to, you know, any hint of kind of mental illness, you know, from a working class background, you know, or, you know, it'd be, be about, you know, oh, he's a bit loony, he is, you know, but nobody spoke about things like stress or panic attacks. It just wasn't a thing that would be naturally spoken about and it would be hidden. And so I think that is incredibly a very, very realistic angle that they take in this and again it's not shoving it down your throat but it is there and it's certainly very believable that Eric's response would be that and that there was even with the love of his life Lily there is this inability to communicate those feelings Mm -hmm. the way he describes it is he's been putting an act on ever since the first panic attack and this sense that no one he's never allowed anyone in his world to know what was really going on. He's just been acting and pretending. We know where that road, unfortunately, leads. Is It's not for everyone going the wrong way round a roundabout, but it, it can't take you to a good place to constantly be afraid of opening up and sharing what's really going on. But as you said, it just simply was something that would not be done. He He just cannot do it. And what he hopes for, the way he describes that, is that one day she's going to look me in the eye and not feel sorry for me, and that's all I want. Mm. It's it's to regain that dignity, that self-respect, and learn to accept kind of what happened in the past, but also find a way to move forward and, and address it. And putting that in perspective with that early scene with all of the postmen coming around to his house to do the impromptu therapy session, that's where all of that banter and laughing comes from is this belief that it's all a bit 
it's all a bit ridiculous. It's all a bit silly, but actually it's kind of what he needs at that moment. And yeah, I do think it's something that's kind of changing in, in British society as, as time goes on. It's just this more, more acceptance of talking about what, what's happening to people as opposed to uh, stiff upper lip, I suppose. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's not even stiff upper lip. I think it's, you know, from in terms of working class communities, it's just, or it was to a certain degree, it was just get on with it. Just keep going, just get on with it. Have a cup of tea, you know, have a beer. Or, yeah, you know, if you're a, a, you know, a bloke, it will, or, well, women as well, but definitely if you're a bloke, I mean, it was your therapy session was Friday and Saturday night at the pub. That's where my dad blew off steam. You know, my dad had spent you know, eight hours a day more sometimes down the pit. And then he would, you know, slate his thirst with lots and lots of pints at the pub afterwards, you know. So he'd spend as, as probably as much time in the pub as he did down the pit. And that was not an unusual occurrence back in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s. Yeah, well, I mean, most of my family probably still does it uh <laughs> but it's it's something that um this this is something that probably goes unacknowledged as character details in looking for eric but perhaps in the future with more distance we will notice that there is something a little odd about how every single time ryan and eric go in the kitchen they go straight to the fridge and grab a beer mm. There's this this intrusion of that idea of blowing off steam into the household, which does show a slight change in English society because I know that my grandfather, he spent every single afternoon and evening in the pub, but he would never have alcohol in the house. <laughs> and there's just kind of this erosion away of it a little bit. The way that these things are eroding away and this ties into that crime that's going on in Manchester and the, the gang and everything with Sack is this gradual erosion of the rules until it gets to a point where it's it's becoming more problematic and it's the fact that Ryan is smoking a spliff and drinking at home and that kind of stuff. It's, it's this utter refusal to kind of ever look at his own situation with a clear mind. It's just constantly like always have my mates around, always just keep going, keep pushing on as opposed to ever really talking and, and thinking about it, that it does make so much sense. So, like, it, Jess explains this at a later point when Eric asks him, why didn't you ever tell me about this, Jess? Why didn't you tell me about Ryan? And he said, I did try and tell you, but it was like you didn't care. And then that ties back into that sense of responsibility for Eric as well. It, it's just, could he have known about this sooner? We don't really know because the, the screenplay won't give us answers to that. But we, we get the sense he was on a certain path that he needed to really stand back and take a look at his life to figure out how he could actually be a better father because he feels that just taking care of these kids, just putting a roof over their head is enough. But it's more about the other roles that he can take as a father. It's uh, protection, caring, education, that kind of stuff. That's what he, he brings in in the second half of the film. Well, it's that realisation that just because, you know, years ago I used to be a youth worker. And so it is this idea that just because a teenager is 
tr- trying to play you off or, or taking you for granted or is messing around or whatever. They are essentially testing the boundaries. They are seeing what they can get away with. But also conversely, they are pushing you to enforce some sort of rules or, or boundary on them. And just because a teenager is playing up doesn't mean that that teenager doesn't doesn't want some sort of boundary because placing a boundary in place is often an indication that someone around them actually cares. Whereas Eric, because he's so messed up, and yes, he's putting food on the table. Yes, he's providing them with a place to live and he doesn't have to. But for those two teenagers, it's not enough. And there is so, I mean, this is the other reason that I really like this film. There's a lot of resonance for me, and not just in a general sort of working class sense, but just the fact that I, I grew up in a, you know, single parent family. And in some respects, even though there were a lot of problems with that, in some respects, it was good for me because my dad was kind of lost. So he'd spend either time at the pit or he was at the pub. And the good side of that for me was that I could watch whatever I wanted on telly. I could watch all the late night horror films. I could have friends around. I could do what I wanted to. But of course, the downside is that I wasn't getting any attention from my dad because my dad was kind of lost at that point. And, you know, eventually it got sorted out and we ended up having a a much better relationship. But even though I didn't get involved in gun crime or anything like that, I can certainly see that experience of Jess and Ryan, certainly more more Jess, I guess, when, you know, he wakes up and he's got his girlfriend round and he's got his mates over and and his, and it's just all I I can absolutely empathize. That was my experience growing up as a teenager. I was left to do whatever I wanted. And as I said, from watching the late night horrors on television, great, but having no real sort of guidance from a parental figure because I didn't really see my mum that often either. It was a strange one. And, I, and in some ways, I wish I could go back and have someone being a little bit stricter with me. So I can definitely identify with that. And it's interesting, the two teenagers in that, Jess and Ryan, They, even though there are so many problems there, they only start giving Eric a modicum of respect the moment he starts to say, no or no. Yes. Paul Laverty is clearly very aware. It's, it, looking for Eric seems to just be full of life lessons and just dramatized. And that scene where Eric learns to say no, which results in him banging the pots and pans around the kitchen and screaming non at the top of his, his, his lungs... It's him also understanding that power of setting boundaries because the kids rush down the stairs and they're looking through the kitchen door, wide-eyed, like, oh my God, (laughs) maybe we shouldn't cross this guy. It says so much to them without having to put them in any danger or threaten them or anything like that. It's just this sense that actually, no, Eric does have a boundary and we probably shouldn't (laughs) shouldn't be pushing him this hard. There's so many different um, relatable points, I think, in in looking for Eric, because I would be in that category that his, his daughter Sophie's in, I suppose, which is that for my generation, it's a social mobility thing, because 
there was this huge encouragement to go to university. And that's what Sophie's doing. She's she's on that path where it's she's trying to graduate, she's trying to get a degree, which will give her some different options in life than the Ryan and, and Jess, who are not going to school, they don't care about it, they're they're not thinking about their future, but it's quite interesting to see those parallels, I think, that that I think a lot of people in Britain whoever's watching this they'll they'll be characters that they can relate to very easily because they've lived a similar experience and in my case it was uh my dad left when i was 16 so i was just with with my mom and my sister so it's a similar kind of thing there was this sudden absence of uh discipline and boundaries in the household yeah like you i'm, I'm lucky i never ended up uh doing anything too bad but certainly other children in similar situations do end up just with worse guidance or getting involved with the wrong people and then they're on a, a collision course essentially yeah i mean it's just a clever thing about looking for eric whereas you know some other ken loach films will absolutely lead with that political message Looking for Eric leads with the story and the character development. But if you want to search for that social commentary or social commentaries, they are definitely there. I mean, like, like we've mentioned, you know, you've got the whole the capitalization of, of, of working men's pursuits like football. You've got the dependence on drugs and alcohol uh, stresses at work leading to dependence on drugs and alcohol and that not being talked about within the confines of a working class community. You, you've also got the difficulties of raising stepchildren or, or, or any children when you're on your own. You've got, you know, that whole thing about mental health and panic attacks. Uh, and and it's, ju it's, just, it's just all there. But, you know, in a similar sense to, to say, A Taste of Honey, you know, Sheila Delane is a taste of honey um, and the film of that. I mean, that that film is packed with issues and yet it doesn't feel like you're watching a film that's packed with issues. It feels like you're watching a very human drama. And that's that's what you're left with, with looking for Eric. Whereas, whereas when I watch Sorry We Missed You, all I get is the issue, the issue, the issue, the issue. And that's as important as that is occasionally, it's it's not as satisfying an experience as story and character. Yeah, I think I think I'm starting to notice this as we talk. We're talking very little about football. Yeah. Which is interesting because that is the overwhelming sensation when you actually watch Looking for Eric. It's that there's this constant red on the screen there's man united everywhere it's it's very much this film that's celebrating the role that eric Cantona is playing in the screenplay and 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 the presence of this football team that kind of unites all of these different diverse characters around manchester even though notably absent is the <laughs> manchester city and the fact that that would probably be the more mm. uh popular team <laughs> In, in the working class households in Manchester. Of course, it has to be changed because of the involvement of Eric Cantona. And yet, when we're talking about the film and what it teaches us, it, it's, it's interesting that 
that kind of fades into the background a little bit, that we don't notice the football part so much. There are some wonderful character details. Another one that comes to mind is the first time that Ryan calls Eric dad is after he meets Zack to go and tell Zack to get rid of the gun, which obviously ends terribly for Eric, uh, being almost attacked by, by the dog. And these are really minor character details, but a good screenwriter, I feel, knows when to when to use every single tool at his or her disposal. And I think that use of the word dad just says everything. Because all the way up to that point, Ryan always calls him Eric, mm. as if he's disowning him, as if he's saying, you're, you're not my family, you're not my father figure, you're just a guy who lives in the same house as me. And after he's he's made that sacrifice, after he's put himself on the line to try and sort out a problem that Ryan's kind of caused for himself, <laughs> then he calls him dad. And it's this re-understanding of, of his position in the family unit. Yeah, and I think it has to be for the narrative to work. But yeah, you see, Jess and Eric have their sort of moments slightly before the Ryan and Eric moment, I guess, in that I guess where Jess and Eric truly start to bond is when they both, they borrow Meatball's car and they go out in search of Ryan. And this is when Jess realises how conversely we've had that scene before where Jess has said, well, you didn't seem to care. This is the point where Jess knows exactly how much uh, Eric cares because he's literally putting his life on the line. Yeah, yeah, and the, again, like going back to that line, I think is so central to the the theme of the story is when Cantona says it was a pass. That was <laughs> my greatest moment. Was a pass. That's that's Eric's pass to to Jess and Ryan. It's I'm going to start. I'm going to show you that I care. We're we're going to do this but we have to be a team. You have to go get the car. You come back to me and then we'll go out together. And that sense of teamwork, solidarity, unity that becomes very, very prominent towards the end of the story, I think is a much more important message than any kind of political story that kind of tries to beat it over our heads. Yeah, because that, that's always going to resonate. That's, that, that's, that's, there are universal themes throughout this. And that in the same way that I would argue that Kez is a universal story that has universal themes that is always going to resonate with people much more than an, a political message because political viewpoints can change whereas the universal themes don't tend to change and that that's why it works and i think and it's interesting that you say i think you're absolutely right it's not about football it's not about manchester united manchester united Obviously, we've got the Cantonar connection and it's set in Manchester, so there, there is those connections. It makes an obvious visual thing to play out in your story. But, yeah, as you say, it's not. This is not... I, 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 I care very little for football, but I can really, really engage with this film in a similar sense that, you know, it's a, it's a different film, but in a similar sense that I, I absolutely love The Damned United. I mean, and that, that to me has got 
very little to do with football. It's about a, a cinematic version of that Brian Clough and his determination and his faults and his flaws and his, his, his best elements. That's what that film's about in the same way that this is about a myriad of different things, much more than Manchester United or football. And I guess if you're really into Manchester United and football, you're going to have a, a certain attraction to this film. But you don't have to have any sort of knowledge about football whatsoever because it is about Cantona, that confidence being projected onto a much, um, in inverted commas, smaller map. So Paul Laverty really looks at it, I think, with this detachment and thinks, okay, what does this mean to people? Why do they connect so much? What, what makes people go out week in, week out, putting on the shirt and going and supporting these teams? And I, he's got some insights into the appeal, the universal appeal of football. One of them is when Eric says to Cantona, it just makes you forget about all the shit in your life just for a couple of hours. And I think that it might be the initial draw. I think the initial draw is the escapism, the, the heightened feelings of emotions, the reason why football is such a powerful sport as compared to, this is often the case with American sports, which have high scores you know basketball will have mm -hmm. scoring in the 90s the hundreds the 110s is you don't tend to get the same kind of elation with just a single moment of a goal where you've been you might have been waiting 80 minutes 90 minutes you might be an extra time and then the goal comes it just is this full release of emotion for people that is is very hard to recreate in other kind of sports such as you know in cricket you you're playing for five days and the, <laughs> the score's going up into the hundreds and stuff like that football compresses this emotion yeah as an englishman um, i still but, don't understand cricket i don't, I don't get it yeah. i just you know someone will say if this is cricket on tv i'll turn it on it's like what what's the score and somebody just gives you it's like a maths lesson i don't, I don't understand what's <laughs> happening do you, i'd say no yeah. it's, it's crazy yeah the stakes are so much more precarious in football a, a one nil lead can be reversed in a matter of minutes yeah. and it's 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 always got this inherent tension but then paul laverty is not saying that this is the answer or this is the only reason why people engage with it, because he then takes that and looks at how it unites communities, how something like FC United occurred almost is because of this desire to reconnect and and create something that... See, I, I grew up on the Isle of Wight, so the closest football team to me is Portsmouth. And if you go to Fratton Park, it still has that feeling it's a very small ground i think it's about 20 something thousand people and obviously portsmouth is a completely working class city because it, it's where the navy is based so most of the people that live there are you know either ended up there because of the navy or active in the navy and so it's very much a working class city still and the atmosphere in fratton park is something that you just don't see elsewhere when you go out into Portsmouth and you see pubs and betting shops and all this kind of stuff where 
you know, it's just a lot of guys just kind of sitting around drinking. And then you go to Fratton Park and it's just like, it, it's exactly what um, Cantona describes. It's, he, he describes football as the only place where you'll see Englishmen cry, laughing and kissing all in, all in the same place. So this sudden belief that you can reveal certain emotions that are just otherwise kept very much down to, in daily life. Yeah, and by saying me saying, oh, this is not about football, I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way because Paul Laverty certainly is into football. He knows his football. He knew, you know, the ins and outs of Eric Cantona, so he knows what he's writing about. But I'm, I think from, from a, a viewer's point of view, you don't necessarily have to have that investment in the entire history of Manchester United or Eric Cantona to get the gist, as long as you understand who Cantona is and what he represented and that confidence, that's the starting point. That's the only thing you need, really. You don't have to have that vast knowledge of football to appreciate this film at all. I think the screenplay is carefully designed to make sure that it introduces all of those concepts that could be considered relevant. It makes sure to take the time to show how Eric Cantona, how he played, how he was as a player, and the kind of memories that has registered in Eric Bishop's mind so that we have that point of reference. So we don't necessarily need to know it for ourselves as long as we're aware of what the character himself believes, the importance that this has to him. I think that's that's sufficient for us to, to continue. Yeah, I mean, it's not... It's it, what the version of Cantonal we get because it's a, it's a fiction, it, it's, it's a figment of uh, Eric's imagination is... A sketch, you know, it's a very good sketch, but it is a sketch. This is not the, the the mistake would have been to try and delve into the real Eric Cantona and bring us that. We don't need to know that. I'm sure it would be really interesting, but we don't need to know that for the sake of this narrative. We need a sketch, and we need that idea of this this supremely confident character, this footballing superhero that Eric absolutely idolizes. That's all we need to take into this with us when we go into this theater to watch this uh so i think we've covered character very well <laughs> dialogue we've mentioned a lot of our favorite quotes we've we've talked about how authentic the dialogue is the way that paul laverty wrote his dialogue in a way that invited improvisation which i think is a very important thing to take away from this i also look at plot and story in terms of a screenplay and i think when I look at those two things separately, it's the plot is literally what happens mm. bit by bit, and then the story is kind of this this overarching progression. Essentially, it's a character arc. In, in the case of Looking for Eric, I think the story is very much about this guy who feels almost on the verge of ending it all. He does make allusions to that in, in early scenes. He talks to his poster of Eric Cantona and asks, have you ever thought about killing yourself? Obviously, he was driving around this roundabout the wrong way round and could have got himself into a fatal car accident, that kind of stuff. The story to me is this evolution of the character getting from that place, which is a very low place to be in, and one that we have much sympathy for, into a place where he feels capable of confronting the rest of his life. Like you said, it's not, even though it's the feel-good movie of the year, is uh, the slogan, 
it's not Slumdog Millionaire either. It's not about him getting the girl. It's not oh. about him, this single-minded goal of romance. It's more about this this self-realization idea, this this idea that he can be, his life can be better. Just however much so his life can be better, but it just involves finding family and friendship and, and drawing on those and learning to be an effective part of that machinery, essentially, which is, is very interesting. It's a very interesting take because, as we've said up to now, I think it it doesn't preach and it's not too political, but it also it's not too individualistic either. It's not saying like, oh, the answer is, Eric, you need to get out of that that dull town and you need to, you know, there's there's nothing in terms of exterior aspirations that he needs to aim for. It's more about just an internal journey, which obviously is a very hard thing to do as a story. So the plot itself is the answer to that. Creates external obstacles for him through the storyline of him reconnecting with his ex-wife, with Ryan's story, which intrudes on his life and con- consistently puts him under more and more pressure until all the resources he has left are no longer sufficient to deal with the problem. It it reaches that point where he has to figure out something that he could never have envisioned alone. It it takes him reaching out to all the guys in the post office and then they, they have to think about it. What is he scared of? What can we do to get this guy Zach to to back off our family and not and not bring us down? Yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's fantastic. The confrontation at the end, it's a, that's a brilliant scene, I think, as well. And, and and it kind of starts, I guess, with them meeting in the pub and Meatballs, who we've already established, tries to find the answer in as many self-help books or books he can find. And, you know, when he, in the beginning, he's got this self-help book and then at the end, he's got this book about psychopaths psychopaths you know <laughs> i can't remember the line he says in a psychopaths they don't give a fuck <laughs> i love the line i can't remember who says it but someone says oh is that the latest research from stanford is it <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Uh, yeah it's a great it's a great line some brilliant stuff in there some really really good stuff but i guess you know even though we've got this great confrontation and there is this 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 win at the end it's still and even though there's a better relationship with him and Lily and with his certainly with his stepsons and he's beginning to get back on track, you know, this is what I mean by the film being quite a, a complicated thing, that there are lots of things going on. So I, I kind of see it as this, you know, the beginning of the film, Eric's life is like this, this jigsaw that is just completely blown apart. It's all over the place. And by the end of the narrative... He's got a lot of those pieces in place and it's much neater, but there are still parts missing. He's still going to have to find these pieces from somewhere because it's not a complete, it's not a complete picture. We, this is still a man who is trying to recover. You, nobody recovers from serious mental health problems overnight. This is going to take some time. And, you know, you suspect that even though the relationship with him and his stepson is much better there's still going to be problems. They're still teenagers. They're still in a, a fairly dangerous situation, you know. So we're, we're not left thinking that everything's tied up neatly at the end. But Ken Loach, for once, lets us 
breathe a sigh of relief at the end rather than having this feeling of dread that we get in a lot of other Ken Loach films, which is nice. Yeah, and there's these symbols, um, his blue suede shoes, for example, which when a screenplay is written, it, it often it often seems very uh, easy to, to introduce these, these recurring motifs, but actually it requires a lot of careful planning right from the beginning. So the concept of the blue suede shoes are introduced very early on so that this minor little note at the end has context for us so we we understand it right when we get to that point and it's this this kind of idea of keeping alive some of his youth and the fact that he won't be able to change his past but there are there are things he he shed in his past there are things he let go of of his own character out of fear and that he can recapture this now he can still bring it back into his life even though he's He's 52, I believe, and he's a grandparent wearing those blue suede shoes around as if he's meeting Lily for a date when he's in his 20s again. It's just, there's just these beautiful little nods, I think, towards towards hope and towards um, towards better possibilities for him in the future. Yeah, the, the postcard as well, you know, so the postcards torn to pieces that he gets from Lily that he's dug out from the trunk. And he's showing it to Cantona, and then he tears it to pieces. And then the next time we see it, it's sellotaped up in a frame. And it is this idea that it has been torn. It has, you know, or something has been broken. Even if we fix it, it's not going to be exactly the same. You can't go back. But we can learn to look at something from a different angle and learn from that. And as you say, there is that notion that there is hope. It may not be going back to exactly how things were but it will be you'll be in a better place absolutely and the motive of the house i think again it's i think laverty is is very aware of these these kind of life lessons he wants to imbue throughout the screenplay and and this gradual progression of the house getting it into a better and better state and even starting to figure out different things about the house and when he hides a gun inside the chicken, for example, these just these insights into the inner working of the this property. It's fun, but it's also something that I think explains visually the character's progress. And in the screenplay, his room is described as his sanctuary. And it's very noticeable. I don't know if I really saw it when I'd watched the film previously, but having read the screenplay and had, having read those words, Sanctuary, when you see the scenes that are shot in his room, it's so neat and ordered and organized. And he's got all of these posters and pictures and everything arrayed around his room. And it's it just looks so different to the rest of the house. And it's such a minor detail that I, I really do think it went unnoticed the first couple of times I saw this film. And I, I, I was going to say the same thing, yeah, until you see that underlined in the screenplay, yeah, you don't, it doesn't hit home just how different that environment and that space is within that fairly chaotic household. And, and again, it's, I mean, as we talk about this, I mean, the screenplay, I, I mean, we can watch Looking for Eric as a, um, a funny, feel-good film, and that, that's what it is, and that's fine, but... 
as we talk about it, you know, I begin to see, and having read the screenplay and watched it a, few, a couple of times again recently, just how clever it is and how we get this stuff over. You know, if you, people, my wife's a counsellor, so she works with, you know, often people who are unfortunately quite damaged in, in different ways. And, um, you know, one of the things that tends to come out um, with people with, you know, who are going through men mental health difficulties is that, in a, you know, in more extreme cases, you get to a point where you try to, you look for aspects in your life that you can control. And in Eric's case, it's that one space. You know, he can, that's the one thing he can control. He can control that. He can have his posters of Eric Cantona. He can have his mementos of the relationship he had with Lily. And no one's going to touch that. It's there. It's his, as you say, sanctuary. And it's a really, really, it's a clever, intelligent detail, which could have been thrown away in the hands of a, a less experienced screenwriter. But Paul Laverty absolutely nails it. The details are there. As you say, it's in the screenplay. This is not something that the set designer did. This is something that's absolutely nailed on in the screenplay straight away. I'm very glad, actually, that we took the time to talk about this film because it is in revisiting it that I've found so much more to appreciate. I do remember the first time I saw Looking for Eric would have been just after it was released on on DVD, so I'm guessing about 2010. And I, I remember at the time thinking, this ending doesn't really fit with the rest of the story, and maybe I would have preferred more of this romantic story with him and Lily. And then as the years have gone on and I've revisited the film, I've started to notice how the pieces do fit together in such a carefully orchestrated way that it it really does work as a, as a film and it really is worth studying to look at how this this story works because I'd been writing a screenplay myself that involved a character that was it was just a personal drama and it was about this character going through personal change and fixing his life and I remember talking to another writer friend about it and he said well you can't really just have a story about a guy fixing all of his issues. He said, there's no, there's no tension there, there's no drama. And Looking for Eric is very instructional on how you can do that. It's, it's about how you introduce external problems for the character to face while also carrying through the emotional beats that need to take place throughout the story to show that character's evolution. Very, very sensibly organized, this screenplay. It's very clear, and its use of this magical realist approach where Eric Cantona literally comes to life and comes to visit Eric Bishop in his bedroom works because the rest of the story is so grounded in a reality that I think most British people would find very familiar and would not question. Because the set design is done so well, the costume design is done so well, the casting is impeccable. They've just picked so many brilliant actors who who feel authentic to that location and to that, you know, this is a decade on now, so to that time period as well. The way that they're dressed, the way they move, the way they talk, it feels so so right that it doesn't draw attention to itself. So the only thing that does draw attention to itself 
is this crazy apparition of Cantona in his bedroom. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I, mean, I don't necessarily think it's always useful to, to compare things, but I, I would say, you know, there's definitely my favourite Ken Loach film after Kez. I think it's, 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 it's beautifully done. It's, like you said, the screenplay is immaculate. It's so intricate and, and cleverly done and he draws so much out. And I think it, coupled with the direction of Ken Loach and, like, as you say, the casting and, you know, like you say, the, the, the location, whoever scouted the locations and, and dressed the set in the house, the house, as you said, is, is perfect. That is that That is exactly what, a house with two teenagers and a single dad looks like. And the more you look at it, you think, well, it's not like Eric. Eric has just got a lot on, and so he's not going to spend time decorating. You know, you can take, you can see the 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 paint chipping off the 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 banister on the stairs and things like that, or the balustrade, and or you know, all this kind of stuff, or the things are not put away, and the the pots are overflowing on the. That is exactly what it's like, you know. You tidy up every, you know, when someone's coming round. That's when you tidy up. You don't, you don't tidy up on a daily basis. And the fact that you know Eric has this room that is his sanctuary and can just go in there and have a spliff and talk to Eric Cantona is, uh, it's, it's believable. You know, as it's, it's, it's crazy as it sounds, it is believable. And and it's one of those magical films, I think, where it just as 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 good as the script is and as great as the direction is and as good as the performance is, there is just something about it which is greater than the sum of its parts. It just works. It works incredibly well. Well, I think that's a brilliant note to end our conversation on. Just before you go, would you mind sharing a little bit of detail about uh, your book, Welcome to the Cheap Seats? Because I think it's worth bringing that to people's attention as well if they've listen to the whole conversation that there's plenty more that they can do if they want to study this type of cinema which you're calling working class cinema yeah i mean yeah i wrote the book um i've done a number of things at the broadway cinema which i mentioned earlier on and i've talked to i've done a lot of talks and i've done a lot of sort of workshops around working class cinema because what surprised me when i started doing that was because i obviously hired to go and research um, and what surprised me was how lit, how little there was out there about working class cinema, or working class depictions. And if there did tend to be any books out there, they did they tended to be very unreadable academic type books, um, which I didn't mind reading, but most readers wouldn't sort of cotton on to. So I decided that I wanted to do a book about some of. The, not all, it wasn't a comprehensive history. It's not a comprehensive history, but it's it's simply a book about lots of films that I felt were important when I was growing up, uh, but also lots of more more recent films. And it was and I, and I felt it was really important to do something that also looked at working class films, as in de- depictions of working class people that weren't just about the North or about the white male that it hopefully I tried to reflect uh, different films which which incorporated different depictions of working class people whether they were male female black asian so 
that's what I tried to do really. And I, and the last thing I wanted to do was to write an academic. I do write academic books, but I didn't want this book to be academic. I wanted it to be more of a labour of love. So we cover. I cover a number of films in the book, um, but it really is. Uh, as I said, a labour of love, uh, but and it's available to buy. You can buy it through the publisher was a publisher called Five Leaves. So uh, if you know, obviously, you can find that online and buy it at Amazon, Waterstones, and, and places like that, or direct from the publishers. Very good. Well, yeah, thanks again, Andy, for for taking the time to come on the show and to to share your thoughts on looking for Eric. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you again for listening. I really appreciate your continued support of the show. If you are wondering how you might be able to aid us during this time, the most basic thing that we need right now is just reviews on Apple Podcasts and for more followers and people to share the episodes on social media. Aside from that, looking forward to bringing you a new episode next week. Thanks again. Goodbye.